This is a viral podcast, and I am its viral host. I preface this episode by saying that I am not a professional, and the resources that I'm using are in the description. So, what did I decide to talk about today? Well, I'm going to talk about HIV. This is the first of three parts that I'm releasing on HIV and AIDS, um, for, you know, some really light-hearted fun. Um, this part will address the science behind the virus and disease. Uh, the next part will be a discussion of the social and political impacts of AIDS, and the third will be my opinions and kind of some summaries of the AIDS documentaries I've watched. So, before we get started, I'm going to give a content warning that this part discusses how HIV can be spread and the symptoms of infection, which are a bit graphic. So, let's get started. (laughs) HIV, or the human immunodeficiency virus, is a human retrovirus. It causes AIDS, or acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Part 1 retroviruses. This part gets a bit repetitive. I'm going to say the same thing about three times. I hope it makes sense each time. Or at least you have some idea of what I'm talking about by the end. Uh, Okay, so retroviruses are single-stranded RNA viruses that use the process of reverse transcription to create a single-stranded DNA version of themselves which then makes a double-stranded DNA version. The process that quickly makes single-stranded RNA into double-stranded DNA has many typos, which create many mutations, because at some point, evolutionarily, it was more advantageous to perform this quickly than effectively. And even now, this has given HIV the benefit of making vaccine attempts much more difficult. Um, in doing this, retroviruses fail to follow the central dogma, a sequence that all life follows, or is supposed to follow, because this obviously doesn't follow it. Um, so this process is, uh, or sequence, I guess is a better word, uh, DNA creates RNA, which create proteins. As retroviruses use RNA instead of DNA, They create a DNA version using reverse transcription, um, which is then inserted into the DNA genome of the host. This uses the enzyme reverse transcriptase, unique name, I know, but you know, at least it's kind of easy to remember. (laughs) Reverse transcription, reverse transcriptase, um, which synthesizes uh, a DNA intermediary that is then integrated into the host genome. This um, idea or concept was suggested by Howard Temin and led to he and David Baltimore receiving the 1975 Nobel Prize in Medicine. The more radical part of this hypothesis was actually the idea that RNA could form DNA and not its insertion into the host DNA, because that had already been seen in Uh, or while studying bacteriophages, into the genomes of viruses. Basically, 
retroviruses made of RNA make DNA, which is inserted into a host's DNA using the enzyme integrase, which make RNA, which make proteins. So it's, you know, a whole additional step onto the central dogma, uh, which it eventually does follow. Um, Non-retroviruses make RNA into proteins without having a DNA version. So th those are viruses that aren't retroviruses, not just anything that's not a retrovirus. Um, okay, so we have known about retroviruses since 1976, when they were reported about by Robert Gallo. Uh, they were confirmed in 1981 by Yorio Hinuma, um, also in 1981. Uh, as I will talk about later, AIDS was reported on, under other names, of course. Um, and we're going to talk about Gallo later, too. And by later, I mean in the next episode. Okay, I'm not sure if it's the next episode, but the next episode in this season on HIV. Sorry. I guess. I don't know. Um, it just didn't really fit in talking about biology, but it's an interesting story. Um, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. HIV is a human retrovirus that infects by creating a version of it capable of entering into its host's genome to create more of itself. What's next? You know, post-reverse transcription. Part 2. How does HIV work? So, how is HIV spread? HIV spreads from person-to-person -person transmission through the following fluids. Blood, semen, pre-seminal fluids, rectal fluids, vaginal fluids, and breast milk. To spread these fluids, or to spread, <laughs> these fluids need to come into contact with mucous membranes or the bloodstream. HIV is not spread through contact with air, insects, or touching that doesn't involve the exchanging of bodily fluids mentioned above. Someone with an undetectable viral load has nearly no risk of sexually transmitting HIV. The lower the viral load, the less likely it is for an HIV-positive person to spread HIV. Examples of how HIV can be spread vaginal or anal sex without a condom or HIV-preventative medicines, and sharing injection drug equipment like needles. These are with someone that is HIV-positive. I think we disproved spontaneous generation in the 19th century. We did. <laughs> it was in 1859 by Louis Pasteur in a competition by the French Academy of Sciences. But it is best to be safe in these practices to avoid sexually transmitting diseases. HIV can also be spread during pregnancy, birth, and breastfeeding. It is uncommon for HIV to be spread during oral sex, blood transfusions, biting, and contact of wounds. HIV is most infectious in the first few weeks after infection, when many people are unaware that they're infected. So here's kind of a timeline of HIV infection. So it starts with someone being infected with HIV. The virus begins replicated, replicating in the first few days and spreads throughout the body, 
reservoirs of virus are hidden in blood cells, lymph nodes, brain cells, and the intestinal tract. At this point, the body is fighting the infection through seroconversion, um, which is the production of antibodies. Detectable antibodies can take 3 to 12 weeks to form, depending on the immune system. These antibodies are used to test for HIV. In the acute stage, many experience flu-like symptoms for about two to three weeks, as the CD4 count, which I will address in the next section, continues to drop. More severe symptoms like night sweats, fast heart rates, and extreme fatigue can be experienced. Second, the latency period begins around six weeks after initial infection. CD4 cells are slowly reproduced as the viral load increases. Or reduced, not reproduced. S sorry, you would want them to be higher. Okay, I'm just sorry. Um, this stage lasts on average for 10 years. Many people that are HIV positive do not pass the latent stage of infection as we have medications to decrease viral loads to undetectable levels. Finally, there is AIDS. CD4 counts are incredibly low, and there is an increase in the viral load. From here, opportunistic infections and cancers can emerge easily. What does HIV do? HIV attacks the immune system, which is responsible for fighting infections. It does this by attaching to CD4 cells, which are T cells with a CD4 protein on them, uh, T cells being a type of white blood cell. So CD4 cells make the body respond to infection. When HIV attaches to CD4 cells, they kill them and use them to spread the infection in the body. To combat this loss of CD4 cells, the immune system produces more. Um, but when the body is unable to produce these uh, CD4 cells um, at the same rate, or when they produce less than the HIV kills them, disease develops and symptoms appear. This weakens the immune system, opening the body to opportunistic infections like tuberculosis, which is the leading cause of death in people with HIV. Part 3 treatment. There is no cure for HIV. However, we have developed treatment regimens of various antiretrovirals. ARVs work by lowering the viral load. The amount of HIV in the bloodstream, um, allowing more CD4 cells to be produced. These treatments must be continued to maintain a suppressed viral load. In most cases, viral loads are suppressed within months and become undetectable. There are three categories of ARVs. There are a couple acronyms coming up, and they're really close, so I'm going to try and differentiate them as best as I can. So ARVs are antiretrovirals. This is the name for the type of treatment used against retroviruses, specifically HIV. So first, there are nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, NRTIs. These work by blocking reverse transcriptase, the enzyme that synthesizes the DNA version of HIV, 
Without this process of reverse transcription, HIV cannot replicate. Uh, next, there are non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, NNRTIs. These actually work similar to NRTIs, but work on a different part of reverse transcriptase. Protease inhibitors, or PIs, inhibit protease. Did I explain the role of protease inhibitors well enough? <laughs> Another enzyme necessary for the replication of HIV. So we're done with the acronyms. That wasn't too bad. NRTIs and NRTIs and PIs. Entry inhibitors work by stopping HIV from binding to the host cell. These are not the first choice to fight against HIV, though. Um, finally, integrase inhibitors block integrase, which sends the genetic material of HIV to the cells that it infects. Part 4. AIDS. AIDS is the late and most severe stage of HIV infection. To be diagnosed with AIDS, one CD4 cell count has to drop below 200 cells per cubic millimeter of blood. The typical range is 5 to 1600. Um, the first reported case of AIDS was in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report in June of 1981. This issue says that two young and previously healthy men died of pneumonia, typically seen in um, or this form of pneumonia was typically seen almost exclusively in the immunosuppressed, which these individuals were not. Part 5. A Brief History of the AIDS Epidemic So, I'm going to talk more about the history of AIDS, which is ongoing, in the next episode, but I thought I would give a brief history on the advancement of knowledge and treatment of AIDS. Um, and HIV. So HIV-related deaths peaked from 2005 to 2006, where 1.96 million people died each year, but since then, annual deaths have dropped. Um, and honestly, I find that found that interesting because it was after we um, found a antiretroviral cocktail uh, that worked. Um, so, I, I definitely talk more about kind of the factors that uh, led that to happen in the next episode, um, so I won't really get into it now. <laughs> okay, so in the first years of AIDS, uh, which were the 80s, <laughs> the life expectancy was one year after diagnosis. In 1996, this increased to 39 years if infected at 20, and in 2011 became 70 years. The last two values come from a study by Kaiser Permanente, uh, which compared life expectancy in HIV-positive and HIV-negative individuals, with the average age of participants being 41 years for people with HIV and 41 for, uh, for HIV-negative people. Uh, this study measures the average additional years that newly infected 20-year-olds could expect, uh, which the first is not from that study, uh, from the first years of AIDS. So why did these numbers change when they did? First, we should identify where the data changed. 
The study includes a graph. I will have a link to the study in the description. Um, the steepest region in the graph, representing the time period with the greatest change in fatality, is between 1996 and 1998. In 1996, the use of a combination of antiretrovirals began. These were successful and allowed CD4 counts to raise enough to make HIV a chronic condition instead of a terminal one. Medicine. So great. There's this medication regimen that can be used and it helps people with AIDS reach a manageable HIV status. That is great, right? Well, for those that can access this medication, yes, they can lower their viral load, increase CD4 counts to undetectable levels, and live relatively normal lives. But for those that can't afford the thousands of dollars per year that these medications costed, that's kind of the issue that I'm talking about later, um, but I talk a lot uh, with a lot more nuance, um, I like to, to think. <laughs> Um, so, before I want to, before I end this episode, I wanted to include the experience of people that are HIV positive to detail the physical impact that HIV has on the body. Um, my friends, uh, read, uh, two first-hand accounts that were anonymously posted on Avert. Uh, I've shortened them, but you can find the full accounts linked in the description as well as others. I was born with HIV. I was diagnosed at birth in 1990. My chances of survival were incredibly slim. I lived in hospitals the first several years of my life, and I've been on most HIV treatment regimens. I was constantly educated about HIV, but trying to understand it was so hard. Before I was eight, I'd lost both of my parents to AIDS. I resented the doctors, HIV, and AIDS, my parents, even God. I didn't understand my body. I was really skinny, but with a bloated stomach and thin cheeks, almost skeletal-like. I had other side effects from having this type of immune system and from taking treatment. I always felt different. I had hepatitis C for a while, but I've been undetectable since high school. I graduated in 2009 and lived a normal life. I'm resilient. I don't have to go through what my parents went through. I recall vivid images of their last days and think if only antiretroviral treatment was as advanced then as it is now, they may have lived. I was diagnosed with advanced HIV and Kaposi's C sarcoma in December last year. I also had to deal with a lifetime medication that was giving me mood swings, lightheadedness, body rashes, and insomnia. It's depressing, but on the bright side, the antiretroviral suppressed the virus inside me from multiplying. Also, the skin lesions on my body from Kaposi's C sarcoma slowly but surely decreased in size and hopefully will fade away with patients. For now, chemotherapy has been put on hold and I am so glad. Advances in modern medicine hope as they give me hope that I will live a full life and not go back to asking, am I going to die soon? Part 7. A Brief Biography so, Okay, so this has been kind of a lot. I'm not sure. I hope I explained this well. Um, 
So I want to include this episode and maybe other episodes, if you like this, with a brief biography of a scientist that has contributed to the fight against this disease. For HIV, I've chosen Dr. Don Francis. Um, So on a personal note, uh, reading an interview that he did with Frontline inspired me to become interested in epidemiology. Um, I will link to the transcript in the description. So Francis worked at the Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, for 21 years. He coordinated with the World Health Organization for the Smallpox Eradication Program and investigated the first Ebola outbreak. He directed the CDC AIDS Laboratory and worked with the Institut Pasteur to find the virus that causes AIDS, which we now know is HIV. He joined Genentech and found or co-found the International Vaccine Initiate, VaxGen, and Global Solutions for Infectious Diseases, dedicated to forming HIV vaccines. Uh, GSID is now also used to track variants of the uh, current coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2. So that's kind of all I have on him. He's, like, really interesting. Um, And as I said, he just has inspired me. Um, Okay, so thank you for listening. I want to thank my friends for recording the first-hand accounts that I had. Uh, that I included, sorry. Uh, the next two episodes on HIV and AIDS should be out soon. I know there's a bit of a, a gap in my last episode in this one, so I'll probably have another kind of scientist uh, between this episode and the next one because these are more research intensive and finding out what things mean to best explain them. Um, So I'm hoping for the next episode to be out in less than a month. Uh, If you have any ideas for episodes, please let me know. Um, I have a lot of ideas, but tell me what you want to hear from me. Um, You can uh, get more information about my podcast. on Instagram, at a viral podcast, um, and you can find links to where you can listen to this podcast in other places. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Bye!